You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Mon père, je ne l'ai jamais connu. Il a été tué avant ma naissance. C'est pourquoi on m'appelle Atim, l'orphelin. L'assassin de mon père n'a jamais été inquiété. Il vit en toute liberté. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashew. Hello, Mike. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast once again. I'll be cordial with you. I think the last time you were on my show, it was, thank you for having me, Chris. So thank you for having me, Mike. And joining me for this month is Mr. Spencer Seams. Oh, hello, Mike. Thank you for inviting me on. African Cinema Month continues with a look at Mamet Salah Haroun's 2006 film Darat, also known as Dry Season. It's the story of a young man, Atim, and his grandfather in Chad. Upon hearing that war criminals have been given amnesty, Atim's grandfather gives him a gun and tells him to kill Nasara, the man who killed Atim's father. We will be spoiling this film, so if you haven't seen Darat, please turn off the podcast come back after you have we will be waiting so spencer when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think i've been trying to remember exactly when i think maybe 2015 or 14 and it was on fandor which i think is still around 
because they have, they have a lot of African movies. Uh, I saw the thumbnail and I thought this looks like a fun action movie, and <laughs> well, it's not that, and it, it immediately became one of my favorite movies. Period. Uh, I immediately bought the the French DVD and like it's kind of like I've been kind of low key obsessed with this movie for like the last six years. And Chris, what did you think of Durant when you first saw it? Spencer, I like how you mentioned it looked like a fun action movie. Because I would contend it is neither fun, not as in it's not enjoyable to watch, but it is a film talking about a very serious topic, and it talks about it in a very serious way. It is not an action film in any stretch of the imagination, though it does kind of look like one. And it is, again, it is a, I mean, look, it's talking about amnesty and war criminals, and who knows better about that than, let's say, the United States. But for those who don't know about African history... That is a huge part. Civil War is a massive part of modern, contemporary African history, unfortunately. So, but first time was this for the show, and, you know, it was good. I enjoyed it. This was my first time watching it as well, and, yeah, when they were talking about, like, Chad's Civil War, I was like, okay, uh, when was that? And I had to go look it up, and only to find that there have been Civil Wars from 65 to 79, 79 to 86, 2005 to 2010, which means that while this film was being made, there was a civil war that was going on. And I think that the movie is talking more about the 65 to 86 type of war. It seems like that would have been when a Tim, our main character, was born, would have been during that period. And I think he said that he never knew his father. His father died while uh, Tim's mom was pregnant, so never got to meet his father at all. And of course, there's a lot of stuff about fatherhood, about uh, masculinity, about responsibility. There's a whole lot of stuff about family in this film. Yeah, it is not an action movie, but man, it was so riveting. I didn't know at all what to expect. I mean, just so you know, Spencer, I don't read about these movies at all before I go in. So watching this for the first time, I was like, all right, I'm with this movie like pretty much from the get-go, and it took me places I wasn't expecting. I was really happy with the journey. And the other thing that I was happy about is the fact that, unlike a lot of foreign films that you and I have watched together, Mike, and I'm only speaking to the ones that you and I have watched and discussed together, which is a fairly large list of things, this movie's plot is fairly boilerplate, which makes it rather easy to follow which is something that we have had issues with in the past with foreign films, because again, sometimes just the way it's presented isn't necessarily the easiest to follow along. I talk about, you know, I think I would probably, as you would agree, might go to some of the Japanese films that we watched. Even if they're intentionally misleading, sometimes they're unintentionally misleading due to the number of characters, the complexity of the plot, what have you. So I also appreciated the fact that this is really, you boil it down to its base elements, a boy is going on a mission to kill the man who killed his father. And everything else is built off of that. But that being kind of the entryway, the opening part of this film, is setting that stage so quickly and easily and getting it out of the way. I appreciate that it gets right to it. It doesn't really add anything else that we don't need at the outset. I wanted to bring up the uh, Civil War aspect. I won't say it's Civil War necessarily currently, but uh, they're dealing with uh, terrorism. And the former president, Idris Deby, but he was president slash dictator for like 30 years and he died 
on a battlefield, allegedly, like a few months ago, fighting terrorists. So, like, this is civil unrest is still a big issue. And the other thing is, during the production, there was a terrorist attack in this were in the city during Ali Bakar's birthday when he turned eighteen. The star that inspired the next film, A Screaming Man. Well, Haroon is my favorite living filmmaker. This is like stuff I think about all the time. But the major themes are family, family and politics, and how politics can affect the, like the common African. And it's always a, a politics in the, in the sense of like it's a situation that they can't control, or they have to make decision that is not a moral decision, just like they are forced into making a a life or death decision on some level against their will if they don't want to make. And there's always like a young woman in, involved. There's usually creating a family where they're without like familial blood or anything. There's a usually like fathers and sons or like parents and ch- parent child relationships. So like the uh, Durat is like the prime like example of this is what Haroon is interested in. You just described the entire film. And if all of his films are like that, those topics transcend country lines. I mean, that's kind of what I was talking to at the beginning of this, right? Is like, this is just so relatable as a topic and as an idea that I think, I mean, you could show this to a lot of people who have no interest in watching subtitled films. And I think they would enjoy this. And I think they would understand it and really be able to sympathize with the plight of the main character. It's pretty much a silent film. You don't need dialogue. Yeah, and there are so many images that tell us so much of what's going on. I mean, the first time I tried to watch this, I was watching a print that was subtitled in French. When they're speaking Arabic, it was subtitled in French, but then when it wasn't, it just wasn't subtitled at all. So I was not necessarily that lost, though. I mean, really, it's... Like I said at the beginning, he we find out about this amnesty. The grandfather's like, okay, here's this gun. Go kill the guy that murdered your father. And then off they go. Yeah, the discussions and the dialogue that they have really isn't that consequential to stuff. It is much more about the images. I mean, think about how many times we see an image of a man pointing a gun in someone else's face. Right from the get-go, even when it's him, like, is on the back of this truck and is going to the big city. There's a guy who's just like, why are you staring at me? And rather than have a conversation or anything, or even rather than to threaten to punch him, he immediately pulls out a gun and puts it right in the, in Tim's face. And it's just like, okay, it's going to be one of those movies. And there's a lot of guns in the face throughout this whole thing. But then there are these much more quiet moments where you are just with these characters and really getting to know what they're thinking, even without them saying a word. It also helps that you have rather emotive actors like Yusuf Dejoro. He has a great look to him just out of the gate. I mean, he is one of those, he is an actor who he, like you always say, Mike, he has a great face. He really does. And that face reinforces the sadness of this character and kind of the, I guess the, but there's a lot going on with the Nasara character, both text and subtext. And there also is a, a, there are a lot of things in this movie, like you mentioned, Spencer, that are, are conveyed without words to the point of this film doesn't even need them. It's all, I mean, it is almost unimportant, the dialogue. I'm not going to say it doesn't need to be there, but 
I understood this movie with or without it, and that is a testament to Ali Barkai and Yusuf Tajoro's performances, that they could be that emotive and expressive without the need to have dialogue. Yusuf Tajoro's performances, this is like the maybe seventh or eighth time we've seen it, it's still terrifying. Like the moment you see him, you just know it's him. Like you see, you see the, uh, the, the scarf around his neck and you see like this, his presence, like, well, this guy has a dark past. And like, I can't even explain how, how I know that immediately. It's like you see him and it's like, well, that's clearly the guy who killed, killed the team's dad. And it's interesting too how they pace it for when we do meet him because uh, Tim comes to the city and Again, universal kind of stuff. He's just about minding his own business when these soldier slash cops come up and just harass him and start beating him. And he's saved by this guy, uh, Moose, I believe. And that kind of takes the story into this like other world. And it's uh, a Tim meeting him and being friends with him. And Moose takes him home. And I think it's his mother is just like, why are you always bringing people home? And at first, like, you think that the movie's going to go in this other direction. And then eventually, Tim's just like, hey, I'm not happy with you. You're always stealing things and fencing these things. And then the movie shifts after they have what I would almost call like a breakup, like their friendship dissolves, and then it moves to another part of the story, and then as soon as you see Nassar, you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, this is the guy. This is the guy that we have been looking for. And my favorite little detail of when he gets beat by the cops in, in the beginning is that you see the, the Chad's flag in a tree next to them. And so it's like this very not so subtle way of like, you know, abuse of power. And like every time you see the, the military, it's always abusing people or chasing people or something along those lines. Something like a Serbian film. Well, I know it is very controversial for a plethora of reasons. Sometimes being unsubtle is the best way to just confront it. You don't always have to do everything in the guy, in, you know, in a subtextual guise. I know writers who use subtext, and they're all cowards. You can be upfront with the message. And I think uh, Haroon, as a director, is, like you mentioned, Spencer, interested and cares about confronting political powers in a country that is widely seen to be one of the most corrupt countries on the planet. And it has a terrible track record with human rights. And we all know that in a country like that, there have to be people who don't like it, and more than likely, it's almost everybody who's not in power. Especially, again, if you're a filmmaker, we saw it with films like Crumbs, Makunaima, where they're talking about the way they're being treated by the government. And kudos to them, because, man, you're making these movies and you're questioning a government that's knowingly corrupt. Yeah, and the craziest thing about that is Haroon was the Minister of Culture for a brief time. He was in the president's cabinet. Got to see it firsthand. <laughs> Which, like, I imagine uh, he kept Haroon around just for PR. You know, it would make him look like not, like not a dictator, even though he won every election for 30 years. That's not suspicious at all. 98% of the vote each time, too, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. No knowing dictator would give themselves 100%, but 98%? Now there's a margin of error that I could believe. We have ways of making you vote for us, or at least of making you abstain. Exactly. Tim is an interesting character, and I agree the acting of him is fantastic, but once Nassara comes on the screen, you're just like, wow, 
this guy, I want to know everything about this guy. And I like how they just kind of like give you little drips and drabs of him. Like, why is he wearing the scarf? Why has he got this electronic voice box that he uses? Why is he Muslim now? I'd like the, there's a line about, you know, you can go to the mosque every single day and it's not going to change anything, but he's trying to be a better person. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. You find his wife, you find Aicha, who is uh, pregnant, much, much younger, much more the age of a Tim. And she tells her story. And I will, I, I was talking to Chris a little bit earlier today. I was reading a review of this in Kenneth Harrow's uh, book, Trash, and he was talking about a point when Nasara beats Aicha, and I'm just like, I don't remember that at all. What the hell's going on? And like, I was so glad that he actually pointed to the exact moment. It's when Nasara is coming home, and I think he, this is like after he's confronted the other bread truck who's been going around town and blaring loudspeakers and is basically taking his business away. He comes home only to find a Tim and a Chim a Chim speaking and a Tim is making fun of him. He's like even doing like the the thing with the voice box and just like Aicha, bring me my shoes or whatever. So it's right after that. And Aicha's not wearing her um, head covering. She's not wearing her head covering, right? And then you see a Tim in the house much later on, and you hear this noise, and the noise is her being beaten. But I did not catch that the first time and only caught it after I read about it and then had to go back and verify like that it was really there. Probably, to me, the most disturbing moment of the whole thing is just listening to it and... You know, you know he has a dark past. He's violent, but like every time he's violent, like the next scene or so, he's like, you can tell he's remorseful and realize, like, you know, like he doesn't have to say it, but you, you can read like he regrets acting out. He regrets it, but you also feel like, at least with a Tim or his, or his wife, they have a meter, and every time he fucks up, the meter goes down a lot. He, he shows remorse and apologizes and maybe goes back up a little bit, but it will get to the bottom eventually because with someone like Nasara, it seems to be that it was escalating every time it happened. And it was, I mean, it gets worse. I mean, it starts out pretty nothing towards a Tim and then he starts, you know, getting violent with him and grabbing him and around the neck and hitting him and stuff. And it's like, okay, I mean, we, like you said, Spencer, he has a dark past. He has a very sordid past with the things that he's done. And it's clear that he is struggling with it, but those moments where you see it break through are really terrifying. When you get the reveal of Aisha saying like, oh, someone tried to cut slit his throat, but but didn't work. It's like, and it's so casual, but when you think about it, it's like, that's fucking scary if you survive that. I think at one point he even says like, hey, listen, I've had a bad past or like, don't, it's not necessarily a threat. It's not like, don't cross me because I could fuck you up. It's, I know that when bad things happen, I get out of control. So he realizes that he's a flawed human being and he is trying to make it better. He's trying to make it better through faith. He is flawed to the core. And I don't think that whatever he can do can get him out of that. But then there are all these moments where you feel 
sympathetic towards this guy. Like when he collapses because he's got a bad back, a Tim who's just about ready to murder him, like one of many times where he's like, okay, this is it. I'm going to murder Nasara. It's like, oh shit, this old man fell down. Now I have to help him to this chair. And really, like, I don't think I necessarily said this uh, earlier. When Nasara meets a Tim or a Tim meets Nasara, Nasara takes a shine to him and is just like, oh, let me help you out. Like gives him bread, even though a Tim spits it out. And then there's a nice echo of that scene later on when a Tim forgets to put yeast in this bread and Nasara spits it out. Do you think that forgetting yeast was on purpose or an accident? I think it was on purpose because I was right after that beating scene. I go back and forth every time I watch it. I'm not sure if that was just like him being a kid and forgetting or if it's genuinely like him trying to sabotage him. I mean, he does seem sad about it. So I wasn't really sure if he did it on purpose or not. I mean, that the first time I watched the scene, I was like, oh, yeah, he did it on purpose. But then when I rewatched it today, I was like, I don't know. He does seem pretty sad that he screwed up this bread because the bread at some point becomes a point of pride for him. You know, Nasara, this man that he's sent there to kill, eventually, I mean, literally wants to adopt a Tim. That's like how close they get. That puts so much of a, you know, as soon as he is nice to a Tim, it's like, wow, this complicates things a lot. I assume we all saw that coming, right? And I, I love that. Like, I knew where it was going. And even though it still went there, I still enjoyed it. I still appreciated what it did with it. Because, again, with what this movie is is talking about, it's 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 so universal that sometimes films like this that are so, so universal don't have anything to say. They just, you know, they give us stuff, but they don't have anything to say. And sometimes showing us something exciting or interesting takes the place of saying having something to say. This movie really is kind of this discussion, ponderance on what it what does it mean to be someone's father versus a parent versus I mean, it, like you mentioned, Mike, a lot of a lot of questions of masculinity, maybe no gay subtext. I don't know. In the next Haroon movie, uh, the he did a TV movie in France. It's on YouTube to rent sex, okra and salted butter uh, about an immigrant family that moves to um, Paris and one of the sons is gay. And that is a plot point and it's handled in a very uh, human fun way where the dad is not happy, but everyone else is like, whatever he's gay, but we still love him. I want to say that I read that it's not illegal to be gay in Chad, though it can be illegal in a lot of African countries to be gay. So, yeah, Harrow, when he was writing about it in his book Trash, he was really, well, first off, he was going a lot into Hamlet and this whole idea of like having to get the revenge. You know, Hamlet's father sets him on that path of revenge. And it's like, okay, is this going to happen? How's it going to happen? Can you murder someone in cold blood? Is revenge, you know, there's that whole thing about, you know, dig two graves, right? One for your victim and one for yourself. But then he also gives it a reading where he's looking at gay subtext. And I was like, oh, okay. So I wasn't necessarily seeing a lot of it between Atim and Nasara, but I was seeing it more with him and Musa, Atim and Musa. And the way that they fall out just felt like, it felt like a lover's spat is what it felt like. But I didn't necessarily see it as as much as I think Harrow saw it. That 
part that he's talking about really is like the first 10 minutes of the movie, which maybe speaks to partially why that's there. I don't know. I mean, again, that in beginning part of the film does seem not at odds with everything else, but it seems to be a setup less important than anything else. It's just a, it's a part of the rising action. It's not, you know, it's not super important. We're talking about how it's universal. Like, I would like to see this type of story applied to, like, the American Civil War or Vietnam or, like, I don't know, like, Bosnia in the 90s. Like, this is a, a, such a flexible idea that I, that I just want to see, like, other cultures take on what this would be. I'm honestly kind of surprised we haven't seen something like this. I mean, we've seen things similar, but to your point, Spencer, like, giving it that like giving it maybe like a cult a cultural spin to to it I think would be also interesting because I mean this movie is again playing in the sandbox in the world of Chad if you were in the United States like you mentioned you have a lot more options I think that would be pretty interesting I mean the performances are what carry this movie obviously and if you got the right actors in the right roles look they did it with this they I mean you know the two leads in this film knocked it out of the park I would be hard-pressed to believe you would not be able to do that in Western cinema with just as good of actors and really have some, something something as special as this film is. Well, this whole thing of being born again, you know, like the way that Nassar is trying to be a good Muslim. And I noticed that after his wife loses the baby, which was a very unexpected moment for me, that did take me by surprise, but cut to him drinking alcohol on the uh, hood of his car. And I'm just like, oh, that is major. You do not do that in Islam. So it's just like, again, he falls and falls hard. And it's like, yeah, he's trying to be a good Muslim. But boom, as soon as that happens, he becomes a bad Muslim and drinks alcohol. And one of the things I love about this movie is it makes you question, like, can you feel sympathy for a war criminal who probably raped and murdered hundreds of people? I think it's hinting at, like, Maybe the 80s when the dictator Hussein Habri was in power. I don't know. There's something about something about that. Just some details like we think it's probably referencing that, and he might have been like one of the torturers under under a different regime. And the uh, the dictator in the 80s, he was a part of the civil war, one of the leaders of the of the civil war in the 60s. And so like he, it, it was no surprise like it was going to happen that he was going to you know try again uh harun made a documentary about the court cases trying to get take him down and it took like seven court cases to finally nail him uh, the documentary is on uh ovid and it's harrowing because some of the descriptions of the torture but i think it needs to be seen just so people can know about this part of history and fun fact the u.s helped helped uh habri come to power Oh, what? no. What a surprise. A... We got involved in other countries' elections? What? No way. We helped a dictator come to power? Years later, took them down because then they didn't do what we wanted? What? No. Nah, I would never believe such a thing would happen in contemporary history. Spencer's obviously lying. Yeah, yeah. I would never, I would never slander Reagan. God knows he doesn't deserve it or anything. Yeah, it is interesting with Haroon, because looking at his filmography, it's like, yes, he's directed a good number of features, but he's done a lot of shorts, a lot of TV movies, and to your point, a lot of documentaries. So he 
definitely dips in and out of different areas. It's not all just, you know, feature narrative work that he's doing, which I appreciate that he can go in all of these different directions. Yeah, he uh, he moved to France and was in his 20s. He he moved out as the dictator was taken over. Uh, he was lucky enough to get to escape and he became he was a journalist for a while, which I think is part of why he gets politics so well. He was able to like talk about politics in a way that isn't uh too it's, it never to me it never feels preachy. It just feels like, you know, giving you the facts that you need to know and putting people in the situations. Even though this is set against the backdrop of civil war and uh, you know the, these prior crimes, I don't feel like he's hitting us over the head. Yes, there is that, you know, the the Chad flag with these uh, police slash soldier characters. But again, I don't think it was too heavy handed. One of the things that I'm most surprised about in the film is not necessarily what they did, but what they didn't do, which I really appreciated. So like setting up that Musa character. So I was just like, oh, well, he's got to come back. But then surprisingly, he doesn't. And it ends up being the soldiers that end up coming back in the soldier in the story. And when uh, Tim beats the shit out of the one soldier, I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Neither did the soldier, obviously, who just got cold cocked with a uh, board or whatever he hits them with. And then I didn't expect a Tim to take or a Tim to take the gun. And then there's that weird moment on the bridge. You want to talk about that, Chris? Does he shoot? Does he shoot him? A, a soldier it runs by and puts weird. the gun out. And I believe, looking at the scene, he does put the gun out the direction the guy passed him. And he shoots. You don't hear ah, or noises or anything. I was curious what y'all's interpretation of that scene was. Because that's one of the scenes that really stuck with me. Because I, I know, as I'm sure the three of us know, it has it's saying something. I'm not sure what it is saying. But I'm curious what y'all maybe your interpretations of that scene were. I've always seen it as, well, there's a line earlier where... Nasserah says, oh, I was like you when, uh, when I was younger. And that is, um, a team giving end to the anger and the rage and him acting out and seeing like if that's what he wants to do. It may be a trial run for like when he tries it, when he finally tries to kill Nasserah, which I'm curious. Um, uh, do you guys, did you guys think he's actually capable of killing him? I think at the beginning when he first meets him, that would have been the moment I think he could have, even though he doesn't. And there's that moment pretty early in the film when he holds his arm out and holds the gun out and he's, he's pointing the gun at Nasara and then he closes his eyes and looks away. And then by the time he opens his eyes and looks back, Nasara's gone. It feels like that was, even though there's a few more times where I think he points a gun at Nasara, at least there's definitely one point where he points a gun at himself in a mirror. But I think if he was going to kill Nasara, that would have been the moment. And I think after that, it's... No, he can't do this. He tries to. To get to the moment where he would have been able to kill Nasara realistically, by the time he got to that moment, he couldn't do it anymore. Right? Because, I mean, though, I mean, Tim is not emotionally prepared to kill Nasara at the beginning of the film. But by the end of the film, he is. You see in that final scene, he makes that decision of his own volition. At the beginning of the film, he is not prepared emotionally to kill him. There's no way. I mean, this is 15 minutes into an hour and a half film. 
so there's that weird kind of cognitive dissonance of by the time you're ready to make the decision, you kind of have had the decision made for you. You know, that's kind of the that's kind of the irony of the movie, right? Is by the time you are ready to kill him, you can't even do it. But like you said, Mike, the moment he had the best theoretical option would have just been walk up to him when he's on the street, shoot him and just walk away. And don't worry yourself with that. But again, he's not the kind of character or the kind of human being, the way he's written, where he would have been able to do that and sleep with himself at night, even though it was his own dad. I wanted to go back to that scene on the bridge, because looking at the soldier that passes him is definitely not one of the soldiers that beat him earlier, because the soldier that passes him is a victim of the war. It looks like he only has one leg. And then the way that he handles the director handles the pointing of the gun. So when a Tim pulls out the gun, he actually points it at us first and then there's a cut and then he's pointing it the opposite way of the soldier. So it's really strange. Just like, okay, well, which, cause the soldier's going screen left. And then after a Tim points the gun at us, he is pointing screen, right? So it's like, okay, did the image flip or what's going on with this? But yeah, he definitely shoots. You see the arm jump. You hear the, the, the sound of the bullet, but yeah, you don't hear anyone scream or anything like that. So it, it feels like, like rage. He's just letting out rage. To Spencer's point, there is part of that thing that Nasara says about, you know, I was like you. It's like, you know, and, I think it's, you know, it is kind of indicative that I genuinely believe that we are all capable of immense acts of violence, regardless of who you are. And that's something important to comment on, because, again, you have a character who is, he is the naive, he is the the pure soul of the film. Uh, Tim is, because that's the way his character is set up. Yeah, do you think uh, his family knew Nasra? Because uh, his dad was clearly military, because he has the jacket and the gun. Yeah, and then the way that the grandfather says, do you remember me? Do you know who I am? He even says, I want you to be humiliated the way my son was humiliated. And then he has Nasara remove his clothes. And I was like, okay, so there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about this situation. I didn't even think about that. I've seen this a lot. So, like, some some stuff is I'm really starting to see other other points of view. But, like, one thing that... I'm curious your guys take after one viewing is um do you think uh Aicha was a gift for Nasara? She kind of speaks to as much, right? Not in, in like thinly veiled terms. Yeah, cuz she said she had no choice. Well, it could have been as much as like an arranged marriage kind of thing or sorry to go back to uh, uh Fiddler on the roof, but like the whole thing of like Lazar Wolf wanting to marry one of Tevyev's daughters. And it's just like, okay, you know, then that was the way that you did it. The older man wants the younger woman. There is no better match for the younger woman. Usually it's like, okay, does this guy have a really good job kind of thing? Can he provide for the daughter? Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, you know, he owns his own bakery. So go ahead and give over the daughter to this guy. So I could see it either way, either as being an arranged marriage or this being kind of a gift to this former warlord slash soldier. 
But either way, I I would think we would all agree it was against her will because she says as much. And that could even speak to maybe because she is wearing the headscarf, you know, maybe it's like this Muslim thing that's going on. I'm not sure. You know, or it could just be something that is happening in Chad. I don't know. And that's not me besmirching Islam at all. That's just like, okay, this could be a thing. So I know in like some Indian uh, places, it's like still very common to have arranged marriages. So I have a friend who is Muslim from Pakistan and he got into an arranged, he was arranged married. And this happened two years ago. So this is still like, I mean, again, I don't think people don't think it's a thing, but I, I think something kind of what you're speaking to, Mike, is for Westerners, our exposure to it, even though we have neighbors, friends, politicians, everybody else who are from the Asian subcontinent, it is still not something that we are really exposed to in Western culture. We're just not. And so there's a lot of like, oh, that's weird. And it's like, no, it's not weird. It's just different. The, the term I think that could be used now without offense is probably it's, it's a little antiquated. It's a little bit of an antiquated. It's, it's, to me, it's kind of in the way Western culture is like you go and ask someone's parents for their, you know, child's hand in marriage. Like that is that same kind of like very old, antiquated, not, you know, not something that has a place in society in some respects, but people still do it. I mean, it is what it is. It's not illegal, so... Hopefully she wasn't a child bride, so she looks young. Well, that's the other thing that, especially, again, third world country, corrupt country, person like Nasara involved, you could draw some conclusions there if you really wanted to. To bring up, like, some modern history, that is becoming more and more illegal across the continent, uh, child brides. It's not, you know, continent-wide yet, but it's still becoming more of a normalized thing to outlaw that. Yeah, it's just the the age thing is the one that gets me as far as like that and the lack of choice. But, you know, especially to have a decision made for you and to have that decision made for you before you're even anywhere near the age of maturity. And obviously, he's been having sex with her since she's got a big old belly and ready to give birth. Yeah, and that's a great signifier, visual signifier of how much time has passed. When they lose the baby, then the idea of them adopting a Tim becomes even more of a crucial thing where it's just like, hey, I want, which is really strange when he's just like, I want to adopt you, but first I need to get your parents' permission. That's really strange that you would adopt somebody that already has parents, even though I think a Tim's name means orphan, or at least that's... They call him the orphan. Okay, so it's more like a Tim the orphan rather than a Tim means orphan. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. Okay, that that would make a lot more sense because it would be like, "Hey, orphan, I want to meet your parents," which just seems like a really rude thing to say. I also find it interesting that the grandfather is blind, and I don't know if the blindness came about because of war, how long he's been blind. But then when you're at the end of the film, and you've got Nasara on one side of the screen who can't speak in his own voice anymore. And then you've got the grandfather on the other side of the screen who can't see. And then you've got a Tim in the middle with the gun. And you're just like, okay, what's going to happen here? But just having those signifiers of the man who can't see versus the man who can't talk. Okay. This is a very, very interesting situation. 
that makes like have like a mythical structure to it almost and they and they make bread which is you know the universal food around every every culture and so it has this like epic universal feeling to it i wonder what the blindness and the muteness are meant to signify i wonder what you know the director is is kind of commenting on i can kind of make my own conclusions as i'm sure y'all could the climax of this film the final final you know two two minutes of this film just they hit really hard they are i mean it is you can tell the decision and how impactful it is the one that a tim is making now i don't believe for a moment that he was going to turn the gun on his grandfather but he essentially killed his grandfather in a way because he while he gave he while his grandfather was believingly believingly got the satisfaction of Nasara dying. That is not the reality. And while perception and reality, as we all well know too well, can now become one and the same, in this movie, the audience knows that Nasara survives, which the whole reason that his grandfather probably is alive, is being kept alive by hatred for this man who killed his son. A friend of mine, Martin Kessler, who was on one of the Czech episodes, he uh, did a side-by-side with Star Wars and brought up some interesting parallels to the original trilogy with this, with the pe- giving the giving the son his father's weapon, you know, like the lightsaber, and then like Darth Vader with um Nasara. with the voice thing, and like the emperor, <laughs> if voice thing, and the emperor with the blind grandfather, like the, like you know that, that's that, you know in Star Wars you know hero's journey. I could tell you guys that 20 minutes ago or 30 minutes ago when we started this podcast, if you had told me that that was going to be the comparison that would have been made, I would have told you you were fucking with me. But it works. It works really well. And again, like you said, Spencer, it speaks to the universal themes because Joseph Campbell, A Hero's Journey, Lucas drew from the most obvious of obvious texts to be influenced by is the story writing Bible, essentially, at least for a for the traditional hero's journey. You said that Atim gets his father's weapon, and then eventually he loses it, or it's taken. And then he goes in, and there's that huge closet full of guns that Nasara has. And again, it's like, hey, can you help me out? My weight belt is in there. And Atim opens up the door, and there's just guns galore inside of there. But the gun he ends up with... I think is he ends up with the cop's gun. He steals that gun from the or from the soldier. It's not even his father. He's lost his father's gun. So it's it's kind of like when Luke lost his lightsaber in Cloud City. But then somehow that little orange thing from one of the sequels found it, and there was supposed to be like a whole story. I would imagine with that was it supposed to be? Did they did they try? That whole exquisite corpse way of writing the the sequel trilogy. Good Boy. lord. You know what they say when a film from Chad outclasses a multi-million dollar production? You really have your priorities unchecked and not in the right order. Well, this is a very classy film, though. I mean, it did. It won, what, in Venice, I think. And I can see this just taking tons of awards if it didn't. If it didn't, it should have, because, like I said at the beginning, it is really moving and really powerful. Not what I expected 
going into it at all. Like, not that I expected you were going to set me up with a bad film, but I didn't expect to be as taken with this movie as I was. And usually something that's quieter like this and more contemplative, it's just like, okay, cool, but my mind might start to wander or something, might start thinking about like what I need to do the next day, those kind of things. This movie, I was locked in from the beginning. I was just like, wow, okay, I'm here for this movie. And it really left an impact. I didn't think that it was going to have that much of an emotional impact. And thank you for bringing this to my attention. To me, this is a perfect film. Not to be pretentious, but this is like what cinema is. Like, this is the perfect mix of visual, audio, editing, like... Like, it nails exactly what, what's trying to uh, get across perfectly. And there is that sense of uh, kind of like, you know, you know, rebel filmmaking in a way like, you know, this is a film being made about a government in the country that you're critiquing. I mean, that is pretty I mean, that there's a ballsiness to that that I really appreciate, because, again, we live in a country where we're afforded a lot of uh freedoms and things that a lot of people take for granted and when you live in a country like chad where it's again widely considered to be one of the most corrupt countries on the planet it's like when the top 10 at least right yeah it's usually like top 10 like worse for women worse for people worse for poverty like it's consistently you know low ranked compared to other countries it's also one of the poorest so there's also that yeah so being able to create a film like this like you mentioned spencer that is almost a perfect distillation of what film should be and doing that in a country where you are probably putting not probably you are putting yourself on the line by doing that i mean again it just speaks volumes to the transformative and important nature of cinema and entertainment, but cinema specifically, because that's, you know, it's the projection booth. Do you guys know about how they had to film it? No. Uh, so after a day of shooting, they uh, Haroon had to ship it to France because there were no, no nearby processing places for film. Yeah, and so they would have to wait a couple of days. So it wouldn't get shipped back, you know, and if it was good, then they'd be able to continue filming. And so it was kind of a... a long tedious process of just making sure like it's actually usable footage and uh, a little fun fact about chad there is one movie theater in the whole country good lord so just to tie this a little bit to last week's film tukibuki uh that film was directed by jiril diop mambedi and uh, mambedi's brother is wasip diop and Wasim Diop is the one who did the score for Durat, which I didn't even realize going into it until I saw his name show up on screen. I was like, I know that name. Oh, yeah, I just saw an interview with him about his brother's film, Tukibuki. So talk about a small world, and they're obviously not even in the same countries. Diop does a song for every Haroon movie. I think it's every single one. And there's Mbeti documentary where Haroon shows up. But I've been looking for that documentary for a while, and I cannot find it anywhere. And we were talking last week about colonialism, and that was very, very apparent when it comes to something like Tukibuki, where they are really speaking to the love of America, British culture, of French culture. And the one thing I didn't say last week that I wanted to say, and I will say it again this week because it also makes sense, is colonialism 
may go away as far as, you know, France may, might not be occupying Chad, but well, like I said before, this movie is in French. You know, there is Arabic in here, but this is a French movie. So even if the colonizer isn't there, people's minds are still colonized. Like French is the language that they're speaking. They're, they haven't gone back to whatever language they were speaking before the French came in. They're making, so yeah, they're making French bread. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's everywhere. Africa is the way that it is as a continent because of colonialism. And like you said, Mike, it may not be there anymore, but it will never not be there because that's why Africa as a continent is in many ways the way that it is. It's unfortunate. I mean, it's a fucking shame, but let's not mince words here. It's, it's, it's awful. And to repeat last week, it's still being colonized by China. They're just the new ones moving right in. But the documentary is called Mbeti Forever. It's a TV documentary that uh, I guess was uh, made it made a Cameroon in France. And I've been looking for a while for that, and I just cannot find it anywhere. I'll see if I can uncover it, but maybe one of our faithful listeners will find Mbeti Forever and share it with us. So that would be nice. Earlier, Chris, you were talking about the feel of the movie going from like uh, this young kid going to a city, hanging out with a friend that switches kind of organically to like the main plot and like the whole theme of work and all that. And like this, the editor is Marie Elaine Adozo, and she's the editor on at least a couple Darden brother movies. And so like, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen any Darden movies, but it's had a similar type of feel and pacing which is kind of like uh, it takes its time to you know to to get the runtime. It's not rushing, not going slow, just going at its own particular pace. Well, and what's nice about it is, again, like you mentioned, this film is how long? An hour and a half, and it it doesn't even feel an hour and a half. It, it feels like an hour. I mean, it just goes. It's it, it, there. There are quiet moments, obviously, and plenty of them, but. Uh, a lot of this movie is just very much like driving action and like things just happening. You have these moments of Nasara and a Tim in the bakery or doing those things, but then you have, you know, uh, moments where it's just things just happening. And then, then what? We're just at the climax of the film. The climax came very quickly. I was surprised. Like it just happened and that was that. And then there you go. And it's like, this was a fast, lean little movie that just absolutely knocks it out of the park each scene builds upon the next upon the next which is nice like even today when i was going back and re-watching and then i was like no i really i gotta spot check that whole thing about him beating a uh, a team i was just like okay well where is this at in the narrative and then i was like okay well it was towards the beginning of their relationship and that you can kind of chart their relationship i was just like fast forwarding and then stopping and then fast forward a little bit more. And you can just see that relationship build from scene to scene to scene, the way that it 
ebbs and flows, too, because it's not just all happy days like, oh, cool, Nasara, my father's killer, let's be friends. There's a lot of stuff that takes place and a lot of ebbs and flows, ups and downs as we go through this. So there's like, I am starting to like you. Nope, you failed. You're an awful person. Maybe I'm starting to like you again. Nope, you're really an awful person. So it's like you were saying, Chris, he keeps sliding, keeps backsliding into the Nasara that would have been the beating aside. He's not a monster at any point, but you know, he is definitely not the, let's say peaceful, inner peaceful, uh, holy Muslim who is baking bread and giving it out to orphans and street children all the time, though he is trying to be that man and he's trying real hard. I guess the question that ultimately arises from all of this is, can you undo the bad cosmic karma that you have put out into the world? Is there any amount? I mean, that's the question that the movie asks, right? That is the question is, can you undo however many years and lives worth of bad karma that you have put out into the world? And I guess Nasara does just enough. At least in a Tim's mind, I mean, a Tim's grandfather would not think so, even if told that the way that this man lives and what this man does, his grandfather would still say, do what needs to be done and put him in the ground. But I, that is the question and the answer is apparent from the main character's mind, but we are left to question if he made the right decision and what decision would we make in his position? I always wonder with this movie, like, uh, well, what's next? What happens to a Tim after this? And I also wonder, like, have there been other kids like that who have hunted down Nasara? Because given, you know, the way he's talked about and discussed, it just feels like there have to be other other families looking for revenge. Right. It can't just be a Tim. Uh, interesting. That's actually a really interesting point. I mean, imagine just another movie of, uh, I mean, how many times does Nasara evade being... You know, how much, how many times does he do enough before someone does just come and do what needs to be done? At least in their mind. I mean, again, this is punishment fitting the crime, crime fitting the punishment is a question that only you yourself can answer. I can't answer it for you. So I have my own feelings on the ending of this movie, as I'm sure we all do, because again, we're all coming from it from a different perspective and point of view. But that, you know, that's an interesting question because the question that I have is what does Nasara do after the movie? Does he just unleash on Atem and kill him because he tried to kill him? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, what? what is... I mean, again, it, it goes down to what you believe the moment that Nasara has at the end of the film. What does that moment mean to his character of being able to say, he didn't kill me for whatever reason? Is that the transformative moment where all of it stops for him? Or does he take that moment and turn it into the moment where he turns, you know, 180 again and goes back to his old ways. I would like to think that Nassara looks at this as a second chance or like a second, second chance and says, okay, I really need to do better. You know, there are those moments where I'm not the good man that I want to be, but this is going to push him to be even better. That's what I would hope. But to your point, as far as like, we all have opinions, as far as like, 
Should Nasara be punished? Should he have not been punished? I'm glad we didn't start off this podcast like a bunch of jokers, just like, oh, what the fuck, man? Nasara should be dead meat. This is no, you know, <laughs> just like, the, but yeah, I've got my opinions and I'm, I don't really even want to share them. I'm just like, okay, yeah, I'm fine with this. The questions that this movie is asking are too personal to be answering on a podcast. And not because I don't want to. And I'm sure Mike, you and I and Spencer could have a lovely, delightful conversation privately about our feelings on this. And we very well may when this is over. I don't know. Who knows? I, again, I'm, it's not my part or interest to push that. But a movie that asks these kinds of questions for me is an important movie, regardless of who makes it, regardless of the language that it's in, and regardless of where it came from. If it's asking a question like this, this is a movie that people should be watching, period. I just love that it makes you really think, like, can you sympathize with a war criminal? I, I still don't really know. I don't know if I can give a clear answer to that. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with author Kenneth Harrow about several of the films that we're talking about this month, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 4. The Robin of Sherwood Method. Remove the character from the scripts and replace him with an entirely similar character. Create a highly elaborate scenario that puts the new character into the same situation as the original. The transition is completed when the replacement character adopts the same name as his predecessor. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared, because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am, selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment. With Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well because... it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not f- 
white people. It's not, I hate white people. It's dear white people. It's how you start a letter. The whole climax of the show is a sex scene between Melchior and Vendla. And I remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way, shape, or form. I'm always thinking about the audience. Make them feel, make them laugh, and make them cry. I mean, that's as simple as it is for me. I had been not wanting to be a part of the film. It was clear in the edit that I had to, you know, really reshape it. So the film really told me what it needed to be. Cinema is an empathy machine, and, and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in. I get emotional just talking about it. And the tea is definitely spilled. David, don't no. edit anything of this out. <laughs> no, no, They no. don't want to hear all the charming stories. They want to hear the ugly, gory relationship that Jim and I have. <laughs> We're cutting that part out, by the way. And with guests like John Cameron Mitchell, Christine Vachon, Laverne Cox, Jonathan Groff, Justin Simeon, Jim Fall, Miss Coco Peru, Rachel Mason, Jeffrey Schwartz. H.P. Mendoza and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind me and I protect She them. is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. Can you tell me how you got interested in African cinema? I always liked cinema. We went to Africa oh, twice, but in, in the 70s. But the, the, what drew me into African cinema was uh, when we went to Cameroon in 1977, spent two years there. Cameroon was producing some pretty great films. They were initiating young filmmakers, initiating really Cameroon, Cameroonian cinema. And there were French cultural centers that were a feature African film. So that's when I first really was introduced, I would say, to African cinema. And I, I enjoyed it um, a good deal. So that was my start. I remember during the, that first uh, series of films at the Cultural Center, they showed Jibble Jup's Tuki Buki. That was probably around 78. The film came out, I think, in 74. But in any event, it was a strange experience because... Um, they didn't have subtitles. And so the, Tuki Buki was mostly mostly in Wolof. We were in Cameroon, where they do not speak Wolof. And the film is also a strange film. It's hard enough to be entirely sure what's happening when you've got dialogue. But without it, people were scratching their heads and wondering. It was uh, kind of a crazy introduction to uh, African cinema for people there. So that was one. I know that was one of the first films that we saw during that that period. And how did you go about dedicating so much time and energy to talking about and writing about African films? Well, at that time, I was not a film for a year in 82 to 83, and I read African literature. But Senegal, as you probably know, is is probably the, the first country in Africa that really developed uh, an important film um, film industry, I guess, or film component. And Semman Usman is credited with being uh, one of the great founders. So I, I went I went to um, Semman's films. I actually got to meet him because there were no b- barriers between ordinary folk and the African uh, film studio where he was uh, where he was situated downtown. So I I got interested in in African film at that time, but my focus in research 
was primarily in literature. It took me probably 20 years before I developed the ability to do more with film. And I have to say that at Michigan, you have to understand at that time, there was no film program at Michigan State. There was no film program in most universities in the country. And I'm talking about the 1970s and 1980s. I remember uh, when we initiated the first film courses on campus at MSU, never mind film program, just courses, individual courses, which I did with my friend, uh, Bill Vincent. Uh, and there were a few other people, but most people who were interested in film is just an additional side to people who also did literature. And that was true for film studies throughout the country. It became an offshoot of literature, literature departments until the offshoot actually became bigger than the thing it, that, that it was linked to initially. Um, so by the night, I would say, I'm not sure exactly, but certainly by, by the 1990s, I began to devote my time much more to film than literature. I did both for, for many years, but it gradually shifted to Af African cinema as the main focus of my research. That was the 1990s. Are there countries that are more represented by having a film industry than other countries? And is there any sort of tie with those with, you know, the films that I've been watching this month are very heavy when it comes to French and being former French colonies. I was curious if maybe the French influence helps that film industry or what your experience is with where the film centers in Africa are. Well, if you want to make a movie, you need money and you need training. Uh, Africans were essentially barred from working in cinema, except in the most subsidiary, lowest levels during the colonial period. And that ended in 1960. Um, after, the, after independence in the 1960s, um, the French wanted to maintain ties with their former colonies. And so they had very, very close, important ties with culture. And they subsidized it. It took a while. Really, it was the 1960s and Niger and Senegal were the first countries where you saw a film developing, not counting South Africa. And I don't, I don't really pay a hell of a lot of attention to South Africa in the early years because it was a white cinema. It didn't really have the attributes of African culture and civilization that I was interested in. Black people's involvement in cinema in South Africa was minimal, um, but it, it was there, but I didn't, I didn't study it. So I studied sub-Saharan African film. I'm not going to count North African as an additional com complexity uh, to the story, but you are right in thinking that the French were tremendously significant. And so there's a, a group of countries in what's called the Sahel, Senegal, Mali, and the, and uh, Burkina Faso. And they, which formed a group. And then next to them is Niger, which became a separate center for production of film. So they financed it. And they, it became possible with tremendous difficulty for, for Francophone um, Africans to learn how to make films. The French at that early point were not really training filmmakers, but the Russians during the Cold War were interested. And so a good number of the great early African filmmakers studied in Moscow. That is to say they got grant money that enabled them or scholarships to go and study in Moscow. And that meant they had to learn Russian. They stayed there for a year or two years 
And some of the early great people did that. Um, there was a bit of working with the French, but it wasn't until probably the, I'd say the 70s or the 80s, that the French began to actually subsidize Africans to learn how to make films. The other part, which is important, these are too much details, but but this is significant. I said you have to have money to make a film. So the question is first, where do you get the money? It, it, it was not a commercial enterprise for the first couple of decades. So you needed grant foundations or national support. There was some national support from African countries, but not very much. There wasn't enough money for it. But the French were interested in doing that. And that meant not only subsidizing the funds for making the film, but more importantly, in a sense, for post-production. <clears throat> post-production in cinema means you take the stuff you shot and then you have an editor who works on it, montage or editing. That took place in Paris under the tutelage of a woman called André D'Aventure. You know, she was a brilliant, wonderful woman who worked with all the African filmmakers. Um, I know there's been criticisms of the French framing this for French interest or audience, but the truth was that it was the directors who really had the control, I would argue. They had the control over what these films were doing, and they and D'Aventure really um, respected the integrity of, of the filmmakers. But the post-production was done in Paris. Some years later, they began to expand and were able to do a bit of it in Morocco and so on. But it was a Francophone enterprise. Um, if that's what you're, you learned or read about, that's completely true. And that meant in the 60s when it just began, and in the 70s and the 80s, 30 years there, as African film began to grow, it was in the region of the Sahel that I mentioned. After that, it changed. Change is really enormously significant, what happened. Um, and you need to know a little bit about if filmmaking is expensive, it's because you're working on celluloid and the cameras and the and the processing of the film, the showing of the film, that costs money, not just to make it, but to maintain the cameras that show the films. And all that, of course, had to be subsidized. Um, the showing of films in Africa was controlled by distributors. They mostly wanted Hollywood films, blockbuster films, uh, kung fu films, and uh, things of that sort, not African films. They didn't work to develop an audience in Africa. And so during those decades, uh, there was a, an elite group of African people who could see these films, but they were available increasingly easily for people like me. I taught at Michigan State, California Newsreel distributed these films. We all learned about them. We studied them and saw them in conferences, but the distribution in Africa um, was weak. And the reason was that the films were not essentially popular commercial films. They were wonderful, they were brilliant, but they were not cheap and easy commercial popular films, which is what the distributors wanted. That changed along with filmmaking around the whole world when in that great revolution towards uh, video filmmaking in the 1980s. That changed enormously. And again, it's a big story, but the gist of it is for celluloid, you had to start putting in tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to make blockbusters. But if you could make it, had a video camera, you could make a film for cheap. And so there were two tiers of filmmaking around the world that developed in the 1980s. The one was the, the studios that were struggling to survive 
and did blockbusters on celluloid and then video film. The video film story is a bit complicated. For some, it was porno. For some, it was religious films. But for others interested in, you know, their, their local culture, they can make films on video. So they were called video films in Africa, and they began the late 1980s in Ghana and Nigeria. That was a revolution. And notice Ghana, Nigeria, not Francophone countries, Anglophone countries. They were local. They were not subsidized by the mother country, by the metropole. They were not even nationally subsidized. And they were um, aiming at a popular local audience, which you could do by using local languages, but also making stories that were filled with the imagination of people um, at home. Well, it grew big in Nigeria. It began in the late 80s in Ghana, and Nigeria very quickly picked it up. And in the 1990s, there was a revolution. And that revolution was the, the creation, the explosion of a, um, of, a video, of a film industry where there had not been that an industry, not just a culture, but an industry that developed in Nigeria. And that became the model. That became the model for filmmaking industries throughout the continent. The name for that film industry was not Nigerian filmmaking, but Nollywood, playing on Bollywood. And it had the same principles of Bollywood in like Hollywood, which is to make entertainment, not educational films or uplifting films, what have you, but entertainment films. And that depended upon cheap production. Video gave way to DVDs. And that digital revolution completed the, tran the transition from a celluloid kind of elite quality form of, of filmmaking to one that became cheap, dirty, quick, easy, um, something that people made out of their garages, just grabbed a few people. As long as they had a camera to make DVDs, shoot DVDs, they would try it. And at first, the films were um, extremely uneven, poor quality, production, post-production was like zero quality. Um, it took probably, I don't know, 15 years till we get to the you know, 2000s where things began to sort out. And this is astonishing. The same way you imagine how Hollywood grew into an industry, how Bollywood grew, the same thing happened in Nigeria. And there was a point, even to the point today, where they were making between one and 2,000 films a year, undoubtedly the most in the world. And those films, not, you know, not, they weren't all successful. They were being pirated all the time. It was a Wild West crazy period, but it got sorted out. Eventually, movie stars became popular. Movie directors like Kalani and Afulayan came to be known, not just at home, but abroad. Now you go to Netflix, you'll find Afulayan films. And so what started in the, in, in the way I described, just as a commercial enterprise, developed into a true, absolute film industry. And your question was, does this take place everywhere in the continent? The answer is no, that it's exactly the way you described it, that there are some countries where we have a real true film history and film culture, where you have actors and who, are, who have become professionalized. And most of all, the production, the shooting, all this becomes no longer dependent upon European or foreign outsiders to do it. 
but people who are trained at home. And that's not everywhere, but it's growing in, in various countries. Kenya's a good example where we see it happening now, where that didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. There was no such thing as Kenyan film, and now it exists. And it, other countries are trying to emulate that. People want to make movies maybe everywhere. They can't always, but that's the, the model, which was provided by Nollywood. We're going a little out of order this month. We started with Tukibuki, and then we jumped to the mid-2010s with uh, Durat, and then we're moving back to Dakan, and then we're wrapping up with I Am Not a Witch. I was curious, as far as some of your experiences with some of those films, I, I know that you had mentioned Tukibuki already. Of course, I'm sure that you've seen it with subtitles since then, because it is such a glorious film. Yeah, I've written about um, all those films. I Am Not a Witch I saw a couple of years ago, and that's kind of fuzzy in my head. I remember I liked it, but I don't remember the details at all about the film. Let me do them a little bit in, in order here. Tuki Buki came out, I believe, in 74. And the following year, Khala, X-A-L-A, came out by Semben Usman. Middle 1970s, really two formidable major filmmakers, totally different. Tuki Buki was much more aesthetically um, adventuresome a little bit crazy. I thought that Godard had an influence. There may have been others, but it was an, a film that really moved in the direction of experimental cinema and was brilliant. I think that the, the last long, um, unbroken montage shot at the end of Tukibuki is one of the great moments of all cinema. Kala was a film, a perfect film for neocolonialism. That is, it's a, a complaint against the corruption of the new government and its indebtedness to the French um, neo-colonial power. So it was the, the most political, powerful film you can imagine, condemning the Senegalese government for its corruption um, and its indebtedness to the French government. Tukibuki was more about the spirit of young people seeking to find their, their way in a world of a new Africa where the possibilities were Difficult. We're closed. We're 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 where there was that struggle of young people. Um, Dakan and Darat represent the next generation. Tukibuki's the '70s. So when we get to Dakan in the in the '90s, we have a breakthrough. That's not a film I paid much attention to, but since you referenced it, I was able to watch it, and I have to tell you, I'm much more intrigued by it now uh, by what that film is doing. It was made in Guinea a country which had been under a dictatorship of Sekoture um, in the years following independence. It was not, a, it was a country which was really renowned for its music, for its um, wonderful singers, the griots, and for dance. But not, not a whole lot of film came out of, out of Guinea. So this was the film that broke, it broke the codes, and it did some in some ways that I thought were extraordinarily ingenious. Well, first of all, your audience has to know that, well, in the United States, gay politics, queer politics, the trans politics, bi politics are part of our culture. And we all realize that we went through a huge struggle in this country. Um, but some people aren't old enough to know, um, but I am old enough to know because I, I was born in the 40s, but that... Um, we had the term in the closet for those early years because people were 
afraid to come out and would have been punished or suffered economically and socially if they came out as being gay or queer or lesbian, what have you. And then there was a fight. They would like the civil rights struggle. That struggle um, was a long one. And um, to cut to the chase, finally, during as recently, it took as long as until we get to the Obama years before finally the notion of something as radical as uh, gay people marrying became possible. And and um, adopting a child uh, became possible. And so, in other words, the normalization <clears throat> of being gay in our country took all, all those years. In Africa, it was different. It was not common. Uh, people who were gay um, were, uh, in some instances, in the closet, but it was a deep closet. I have to say that when we were in Yaoundé in the 1970s, we had a, a Frenchman who uh, was tutoring us in French. And he was gay. And he he told us that there were nightclubs, night places, not clubs maybe, but places where he would gather with gay friends who were African, but they could not come out. If they were gay and came out now, all these years later, we're talking almost 45 years later, in Cameroon, they would be they would be persecuted and they would be put in prison. That's happening still. Africa is divided between a small number of countries in which gay rights, um, the struggle for gay rights is advancing slowly in other countries where people are still quiet and many countries where they would get whacked badly uh, were they to come out. So under those, understand, so under those conditions, making a movie about people who are gay nowadays is political. It's not pure and it's not just entertainment. It's a, a political what you want to call it, part of a struggle to advance a cause. And there have been very few films. The latest one that I know, made about three years ago, I think, in Kenya, called Rafiki by um, Wenore Gahiu. It's a, a film that was opened in Cannes and condemned in Ghana. They tried to shut it down, but when there was such an international outcry, they gave her permission to show it for a week in, in Kenya. It's a big movie. We all know it. Anyone in African film knows Rafiki. It's about two uh, girls who develop, uh, you know, a love re relationship. It's a beautiful film, very successful, but it sure as hell is a, we, we wouldn't say an entertainment film as such, right? It's a film that's trying to argue in favor. So that Khan was ahead of its times. I don't know how that guy did it. He made this film at first without the government knowing what he was doing. And then when they found out, they withdrew support, but he succeeded. And I think because in the 1990s, the French were was perfectly cool with, with, um, with gay relationships. Um, it was there in African culture, um, not just in, in people's social relations, but in literature as well. I remember uh, Bound to Violence was a, uh, a novel that came out early. I'm not sure the years, the 70s, I think. Yeah, I think it was the 70s. And it won a huge prize in France, the Prix Goncourt, I think. But it won a huge prize. And part of it did involve a gay relationship. There were gays who were mocked in um, in, uh, in Tuki Buki. There's a scene where a gay character named Charlie is made fun of. Uh, gayness was condemned through the continent as being having been introduced by foreigners, especially uh, Westerners, French, it was 
that it was described as a form of corruption of African norms and so on. And that argument is still used, but I have to say, I, I believe that the tide is shifting slowly. And it's really because African people who want to um, have courage to stand up for it, do it. If they, if they didn't, it would, things would not change, but they are. And so that's the con. It was a movie that, that where the filmmaker had courage. Um, he persisted despite ultimately the government being opposed. The film was not a, a huge popular success, but it, break new, it broke new ground. And it, it, it took a while. I told you about Nollywood. I remember at least one film called Jezebel in Nollywood um, films where it, um, the Bobby Water, the, the, uh, the spirit queen, recruits um, a woman to, be, to have a lesbian relationship. So if you understand this is, you can get the lesbian relationship in, but it's got to be an evil spirit or something which is animating it. But it's represented on the screen, and that it's not it's not centered to the point where you can't see it on the screen. Uh, it becomes part of some of the dangers, and probably the dangers of modern life, or of Western influences. It gets very complicated because in Senegal, there was a figure called the Umfam Man Woman, who was a popular entertainer in uh, Saint Louis, and that figure was a man who dressed up as a woman. And we, we found the figures like the Umfam at, at times when we lived in Senegal. So there's a kind of, and yet Senegal is a country which is very, very cautious about admitting um, the possibilities of, of, of uh, gay people um, having rights. The Khan also broke one other code, and I thought it was extraordinary, which is that it showed something I, I don't remember having seen elsewhere in African film, and it goes with breaking the prohibitions on gay relations, which is that one of the characters uh, develops, or one of the gay characters develops a relationship with a white woman. But the white woman, when you first see her, her name is Umu. She sells cloth in the market. She's speaking the language, the local language, as well as French with people in uh, Conakry. And you wonder when you first see, is she supposed to be an African woman, but it happened to turn out white in some weird way. And then there's a little mention in the film, oh, well, her mother died and she was raised by an African woman. And so that whole business about the children who maybe have a race identity, which is unclear, which was a popular theme in, in Africa, because there were a lot of intermarriage between black and white people. The children would get lighter or darker and the children reveal the relation, the sexual relation of the parents. So in this in this film, we have this character who becomes uh, a love interest uh, with one of the gay characters. I thought that was kind of amazing. And furthermore, um, at one point, she's attempting to seduce the man with whom she has a relationship into, let's say, a heterosexual um, erotic erotic relation. And the film is very daring in the eroticism. Of, of that scene where we have their love scene represented. In Africa, in all the years that I've been there, there's been censorship. The censorship turned more on prohibiting political opposition from getting a voice. If there's a little bit of sex or some kind of sex that would come in, that would be okay. Nudity was not really a problem uh, in, in the films, but politics were. 
But now the line between politics and gay politics, lesbian politics, is that line you understand has changed, it's shifted. So they all become political in their way. Okay, so we got them all, but we we didn't get to the film that um, I'm most familiar with, actually, which is uh, Durant. I really enjoyed your thoughts on Durant, especially um, just the way that you picked up on, we were talking about gay themes in Dakan. You kind of talk about that with Durant. And then also the whole idea of um, comparing it to Hamlet, I thought was brilliant. Well, thank you. What, one of the major themes in African literature and then uh, cinema has been patriarchy and from the beginning. And so the struggle against patriarchy initially, even before independence, was linked to the struggle against colonialism. And that's because the figure, the figure, the white people who had power in Africa, in French you say commandant, the word just sounds like commander. Commandant, it was an actual title given to the commandant de région, that someone who would who would be appointed by the colonial power uh, to control a region. Above the commandant would be the governor. So these these figures were patriarchal. I mean, unbelievably powerful patriarchal figures and the great struggle that African people had, I would say going back to the to the early literature of the 1950s, was that the authority of the father figure or the authority even of the African rule, be they you know local emirs or kings or prince or whatever they were, their authority was supplanted by the European colonialists. So the African father became subordinate to the white father, to the colonial father. Um, and so we had a double father. And the, the revolt of the son against the father, let's say in the conventional edible situation of patriarchy, then became split, became complicated. How is the son to determine his own independence, individuality in relationship to a father when his own father was subordinate um, to, to a either a white missionary priest which even complicated the story even more, or to the to the white rulers. So we have a substitution for this kind of um, situation when we have independence. With independence now, the white colonial rulers have been replaced, and they're replaced by African governance. But the African governance after 10 years became a struggle for power increasingly by military figures or by dictators. There were very few African states that escaped from that situation. Um, some escaped with one-party rule, as in Senegal, briefly, but that was the the exception. And then, in any event, Chad is a country that was troubled by dictatorial rule down until this day. Now, in fact, the latest ruler, uh, Deby, who was in power when this uh, film was made, he he was Deby was just assassinated and replaced by by his his son. So here we have a film which, in which we have uh, a struggle between uh, Hassan, uh, um, what's his name, uh, Abre, and then followed by Deby, the current ruler. The one overthrew the other, and in the film, the supporters of the previous uh, dictator, um, many were killed. And it's a story about a young boy whose father was killed during this period, and whose grandfather said, you will go out and revenge, take take revenge for your father who was killed because the government has given amnesty to all those people and we will never get revenge for the death of your father. 
His father in in Hamlet, Hamlet's father is the ghost who tells the son that he must take revenge, but he must take revenge against Claudius, who's married his mother. In other words, who's taking the father's place. He must take revenge against the stand-in for his father. And when the the great drama of, of Hamlet is why does Hamlet, why is Hamlet unable to act? Why can't he kill Claudius? He says at one point, he's got the knife in his hand. He's standing over Claudius. Claudius is sleeping. He says, now I might do it, but he can't. <laughs> and he thinks and he, he and his thoughts wind and wind and wind. He said, nah, I can't do it now. If I do, he'll go to heaven. And so it's, it's um, his, his, his relationship to his father must obey the father is now complicated by a relation to a father substitute who's taken and, and who we now has to kill. Of course, for Freud, this is the Oedipus complex, and it's it has to do with the son internalizing that father figure against whom he must rebel, yet at the same time with, him, with whom he must also identify. Killing the figure that he identifies with means, in a sense, killing the figure who's also himself. If he's incorporated, identified with the father, if he must rebel against him, he's rebelling against himself. That's why the great speech in Hamlet is to be or not to be. Should I kill or should I not? Can I exist or not? Should I turn the blade against myself not to be? And then he goes on and says, yeah, maybe I should do it. But then after I die, it'd be like having bad dreams. And so he talks himself out of it again. The same thing happens here. And in one of the most incredibly rich scenes, we see Atim, the young boy who's got a, a gun, and he's looking in the mirror, and he's pointing the gun at himself, and his hand is steady. And he's, you know, the this is very much like um, he's thinking, should I do it? And it's the scene that's replicated, of course, the famous scene that we have in Scorsese, right? Where um, you're talking to me, you're talking to me, pointing the gun in the mirror to himself. But when he turns the gun to uh, to Nasara, the, the, the father figure, his hand shakes. He can't do it. He's, it's like he'd be shooting himself, and he, he doesn't have the power to do that. So it's definitely a film that has that edible struggle um, of killing the father, and it gets further complicated because he's developed feelings for the mother figure. And it's exactly the same way as it works out in Hamlet, where Hamlet is too close to his mother, and here we have Atim, who is too close to Aisha. And it gets complicated. Aisha is a famous figure in, in Muslim society, in Muslim um, re religious thought. She's the youngest wife of Muhammad. And there's a moment where Muhammad has gone off and people are following, including Aisha. And where's Aisha? She's kind of late behind. And somebody else is sort of helping take care of Aisha. That should Muhammad punish Aisha for that relationship that got developed gets spilled over into this film where Aisha is now a young figure, like the young wife of Aisha, of Muhammad. And uh, she, in a sense, is, be, is being set up for that same relationship with, um, with, with Atim, who becomes a son figure for, uh, for her husband. It's very fascinating to me that you have one character who has the inability to speak or he needs to have an outside presence to help him speak. And then you've got the grandfather character who can't see. It seems very 
it seems like there's something going on here with these two disabilities. Well, that's a good a good point. I haven't thought that through, but uh, I think that the, dis- the disability is clearly um, it, it's a symbol for something besides the physical t- disability. That there, I don't want to say it's a, it's a flaw, um, but in in the case of the grandfather, I refer to him as the as the if you will the original patriarch. He's God in the desert. He's the one who sets a team out to take revenge, to revenge, take the revenge for the death of his father. He's very, he, I mean, it, the, the desert scene in this film is extraordinary. I mean, it, it's as though we've gone back 2,000 years to an ancient biblical period where this figure has his power. But his blindness is like his inability, not just to simply to see or to understand, but to exercise the power of the father. The father, that figure of the powerful patriarchal father, the father, God, God the father, God who who gives the moral imperative to the son of revenge, the God who who has the power to to launch the military rockets that that will lead to his controlling the, the universe, or in this case, Chad, has been replaced. And it's been replaced by a son who is no longer capable or, let's say, interested in playing that role of the father. I think that both father, that that Nasara, who is the substitute father, um, is like that as well. He's the owner of the guns. He's the one who killed at the behest of the previous ruler. He was the one that enabled the dictatorship to take power. and And it's that shift to a new regime that we see happening in the course of this film with that team as, as a representative of this youth of the new generation. But the name Atim means orphan. His father's gone. His father's dead. And uh, Nasara can't take that place of the father that the patriarchy had, had demanded. You could probably go back to 1605 or whenever it was that Hamlet was written when Shakespeare was going through that same transition and not just simply in rulers, but in the nature of society, of Elizabethan society in the early 17th century, it's very much like what was happening, I believe, which is the shift into modernity and of power that was taking place in Chad at the time of independence, the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s. So, yeah, I think your point is really important that we see these father figures no longer as capable of exercising the power of patriarchy, which requires that the sons move into the position of ultimately replacing the fathers. And that replacement, for whatever reason, can't take place. It can't. There's there's a blockage in that replacement. And I, I love the idea that whatever understanding we have of that replacement, it requires asking the question, well, where are the female figures in this story? And as it so happens, it is that it is that figure of the of the mother who's who is not seen elsewhere in the, in the film, who is part of the animation of what drives the action forward. I especially like that the grandfather tells a team at the end, "Now you are a man." Like that is what it takes is to murder the other person, to murder the the false father. I mean that exactly makes my point because for us that 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 is the key, a key line which is ironic. It's ironic for two reasons. One is because the grandfather can't see what we could see. So we can appreciate the irony 
that he's deceived into thinking revenge is taking place. But he's also deceived into thinking that his grandson has become his instrument of a revenge, that is to say, has become a man the way we understand the word man before. Harun is wonderful. He's brilliant. He did a film called Grigri with a, a handicapped character who dances, which is just astonishing. But it's the same story. And I think there is a, an African story of our day that we can't simply create without conflict the story of the son replacing the father when we realize what the father represented and what the father represented to the generation of filmmakers like Harun is that they were, on the one hand, that they raised the children, that they taught the children African values, that they were the patriarch within the home, but at the same time, they were subordinate to a colonial rule, which, which was greater than their authority, and, the, and the, the children of those patriarchs had to have appreciated the double bind that their own parents were in, on the one hand, seeking to exercise an authority and raise them, within the culture, as they saw valuable, and yet at the same time subordinate to another culture, which did not share the patriarchal, or in this case, the gender role of values that the father would have had. And so they were torn. And I think the place where they were most torn from the beginning, right, and I could, I, I, I could give you examples, but I'll just state it for now, was how the women fit in. Because you can't have that patriarchy as an absolute um, image of what it is to be a man well, without the subordination of the women. And in fact, what happens towards the end of the colonial period and with the coming in independence is that the women refused to play that role of the subordinated, dominated, subjugated figures, but insisted on entering into what we call modernity. That is, they got jobs, they learned to drive, they raised their children, and so someone like Semben Usman makes a movie called Fatkine around the year 2000, where all of a sudden this woman is raising her kids on her own, sending them to college. She's got her own business. She's telling men what to do. And the whole world is turned upside down with the, the, with the picture of women. So you can imagine within that world having lesbianism now coming into its, its own as well as where people are going to say, where did that come from? That's not our tradition. There must be those corrupt Westerners who brought that in. And so women were faced with the double bind of, on the one hand, not wanting to be subordinate, and yet, on the other hand, not wanting to be seen as merely emulating European, Western, American female values. Feminism has been the most vexed location for the entry into modernity for, the re for that particular reason, that women insist on having their not simply their rights, but their place, that their agency, I should say. Women, they want to be part of this world, and they're making movies now. <laughs> and these movies have women, women directors. Where did they do this? How did they get to do this? And that's, that shift of a new period, really, um, it's, it's fundamental that we have women entering into that, um, into, into, that, into that role. I think that what a film like Darat does is it clears the way, making it possible for us to envision Aisha's story, that she's a figure who matters, and the next movie, she'll be directing. She won't be simply the wife of, of the, the failed patriarch. That resistance to feminism and to gay rights, is that coming more 
culturally or more via religion? I know a lot of these countries that we're talking about practice Islam. I mean, is it just more of a historical thing that this is not accepted by society? I'm curious where that resistance comes from. As you're uh, suggesting, there's more than one location for the resistance. Uh, Certainly, the, the first place to look and the easiest is patriarchy. It's, you know, in our day and age, when you have a figure like Trump who boasts um, having sex whenever he wanted and so forth, and half the country voting for him, it's not that Western society is free from the same patriarchal crap um, than anywhere else. The struggle is similar in Africa. Um, in, in this country, people might say something like, well, you know, you get over it. You should realize that women are part of this world. You think you have all the power, but Cuomo is going to be thrown out of office. We're, we're not in an age where men can dictate the roles uh, anymore. We live in an age of Me Too. That's true in Africa as well with the same kinds of pressures. If you ask, is it um, religious, is it Islam, or is it religious pressures, I can tell you within the church in this country, Traditional family values is a code for patriarchy, perhaps, as well. And those same institutions of um, evangelical religion in Africa are linked to the same, the same forms that we have in this country. In some cases, at least one that I know of, is kind of horrendous, where a, a well-known evangelical uh, preacher in the States went to Uganda and really lobbied their government and pressured them to declare a homosexuality satanic and evil and so forth. Um, and you will you'll find one way I frame it is resistance to modernity. That is a change where when people think of themselves as being part of a modern world, whatever the world that word modern means, it's often in conflict with the word tradition, which is traditional, which can be linked to religion. That could be true in Islam as much as it could be true in Christianity, though each each will use their own Bible or Quran and find the verses they want uh, in order to condemn it. But it flips in both ways. I mean, Islam is not united around the question of modernity, as, as you know, if you look at the Arab Spring and the struggles that are taking place. Those are struggles that also have to do with the role of women in society and increasingly within the Muslim world, women are demanding their rights just the same, along the same feminist lines um, as they are in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's been true. I can tell you we were in we were in North Africa before sub-Saharan Africa. We were there in the 1970s, and women were fighting for the right to wear miniskirts or to marry whoever they wanted or to get jobs. The same struggle, similar struggles that you find you find elsewhere. It lies partly there and partly the reaction against um, feminism or against um, gay rights has been framed, has been framed by traditionalists or by patriarchal forces as a struggle against Western values, that it gets linked to the notion that this came from the outside, from colonialists. Now they want to corrupt our society and we have to struggle against it. So it gets that's not religious. But the two over, overlap um, in places as throughout Zimbabwe and Southern Africa. It's the same. But you also have, you have countries like South Africa, for example, where gay rights are probably stronger than 
and the, and the other place on Earth. And there are other countries where they're gradually uh, becoming accepted. We started this conversation talking about you, and I'd like to wrap it up talking about you as well. I know that you've retired now from MSU, and I'm curious, are you still working? Are you working on more books and, and articles? The answer is, yeah, I am retired. It's been about going on three years, yeah. I think, since I retired. I haven't stopped uh, working. I do have some graduate students who are, who are still in the process of writing their dissertations. And so I'm linked to the university directly through them. But it's a hell of a lot different when you're not teaching courses on film anymore. I watch a film. I no longer think, gee, I want to teach that one. It becomes more like, well, maybe I'll write about it. And yes, I'm still publishing. I'm still um, involved with other people in projects. Uh, I'm involved in a project right now with the African Studies Association of choosing the best African film of the year to which we give awards every year. So that meant that I've watched 30 or 40 films, African films in the last um, couple of months uh, to, to work with my colleagues to try to try. I'm very much involved in that. And I do branch out in trying to branch out in new directions somewhat. But wherever I go at this point in my life, it's really African film that supplies the location where I imagine here's a topic I want to talk about. Here's something I want to write about. I can't do it without taking my examples from African cinema. It's become um, it's sort of driven my imagination, my imaginary uh, to that extent. Professor Harrow, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. And uh, I really liked your, the thoughts that you had. They were really good jumping off points for me. All right, we are back and we we're talking about Durat. And let's talk a little bit about the ending. What it should have been was that Tim comes in and he makes Nasara put on his old uniform and march around. And I'm trying to think of what else happens in Apt People. I haven't read that in forever and I refuse to watch the movie. So no frame of reference for what you're talking about. <laughs> At least it wasn't Apt Pupil. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I thought you were going to go with like a, the Tarantino version of like it's just a blood fest. Right. There's a shootout. <laughs> A Tim grabs a can of dog food and starts beating him over the face with it, and then lights him on fire with a flamethrower. Yeah. That's the ending that this movie deserves, clearly. I mean, why have a nuanced ending when we could just have, you know, shit blow up and Leonardo DiCaprio be drunk in a pool? What's We're missing it. They're, he missed it. He missed it. Well, they should have gone back 20 years, and a Tim somehow defeats the, the forces that created the Civil War in the first place, and we just rewrite and history And then Black altogether. Widow sacrifices herself? We went from Tarantino to Marvel <laughs> just for you. <laughs> yeah, one of my uh, favorite moments in this whole movie, well, two favorite moments, uh, one is when the police arrive at the bakery, and they have like a, a notice, or a notice, but a, a summons for him. Where Nasra and he just gives it to a team, and a team reads it. And in that moment, you realize, no, Nasra's illiterate, and they don't spell it out. It's just this brief little character moment of like it's five seconds, and it's like and it tells you that very key detail, which also kind of leads to maybe he was like brainwashed early on by like a corrupt government, and that's like the magic of this movie. Just it does these little character moments that really make you think about everything. That's been going on. 
the film doesn't go as far as to say, like you mentioned, Spencer, the Nasara Nasara. I I think I who knows how to pronounce it. We pronounced it. I assume close enough. Nasara at some point in his life, I assume was a a normal decent human being was not born evil because if someone who's born evil does I don't think would come to this conclusion later in their life so again like you said Spencer it really does keep reinforcing can you feel sympathy for this person what does that mean what does that look like is it absolute sympathy is there is it sympathy with a hook or with a catch it, it, what does that look like and when you have a character moment of he doesn't know how to read I mean, that, again, that's just, it's pushing that sympathy meter, and it's pushing that sympathy with the audience, and it works. It's effective. It's very effective. And also in that moment, you learn that's not his real name. His real name is uh, Abdallah Yusuf. And so Nasraz is, you know, a, a pseudonym, an alias he's been going by. Yeah, he's probably trying to not be recognized by people who uh, he hurt during the war. Yeah. And then my other favorite moment is at the end when he shoves him to the ground and he starts to pray silently and the grandfather says, Kill, uh, shoot him again, which makes you think, like, can the grandfather hear him praying or is it just the grandfather wants to make sure, like, his grandson is finally a, a real man, quote unquote, or both? I don't know. That is a really good question, because, yeah, I wasn't sure when he said finish him off. I was like how aware of things is he so yeah that's a that's a good question and then yeah because you can see nasara praying you can see his mouth moving but i didn't hear anything maybe the grandfather had that daredevil hearing he could given that the man speaks with a voice box it's just such a heavy emotional scene and it's earned that's the thing too is it doesn't feel like where the hell did this come from this this isn't earned at all, but yeah, I was just like, I'm here for this. I'm this movie has taken me someplace. And Ali Barkai just I mean, this actor carries the film on his shoulders. And he's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. He is in a Claire Denis movie, White Material, which I think is great. It has one truly Claire Denis, so like there there will be uh, a horrific scene somewhere and it's Ali Bakai is in it. And you could, uh, my friend Martin Kessler, he argues that you could say that's a sequel to Darat with that, with Bakai. Like it could be him if he went the direction is of his grandfather and like embraced, you know, like, you know, like the emperor embraced the hate and the anger. I mean, that's what his grandfather wants. That is that. I mean, that struggle at the end of the movie is do you do the bidding of someone who is filled with hate or do you, uh, you know, do you abstain because the person that is being, you know, being asked to be killed is trying to do better, right? That's the question. And so also, you know, about like, what would a real man do? And it, ne- it never really explicitly, I don't think it explicitly brings up like masculinity. It just kind of is a, it's always there. And if you're paying attention, like, you know, you'll notice like it's also kind of talking about like, you know, what what a real man is in this situation. I like that he that a team you know went with mercy because if he killed him, I don't think I would like this movie as much. No, and I don't think I I don't know how I would have felt about it, Tim, after the movie if he became a murderer because he basically would have become the thing that he hates the most. 
I guess there is only a, only is kind of one outcome for this movie that really works then. Because from the sound of it, y'all saying what you y'all said, and I would echo that 100%, if he had killed Nasara at the end of the film, I won't say that I could not have come around on him as a character, but it would have been a much larger hill to get over, a mountain to climb, you know. It would be a harder argument to make, to me at least, to convince me that this is a character, a Tim now still deserves my sympathy as a character, even though he committed one heinous act. If you're listening and you haven't watched it, like, it's not homework. It's a very easy movie to watch. It deals with very serious topics and issues, but it, it breezes by. It's never oppressive at any point. Like, it's effective, but it's not oppressive. Is the film available easily with English subtitles? Amazon Prime has it right now. Fandor has it. And I always check YouTube because you can find a number of African movies on YouTube. So it might be on there. But there's a f- French DVD that I have. But uh, I think there might be a Reach 1 DVD. But Fandor of Amazon is the easiest way to go. Never used Fandor of you, Mike? It's been a while. It's been a while. But yeah, I, I think I still have it on my Roku. Just one more that I've never heard of at this point. Oh, God. Yeah, they they crop up. (laughs) Like, what was the one I just... I added Kino Now and Film Movement to my Roku. So, does Kino Now just feed you those numbers all through the day? Give, like, little animations of, like, these numbers showing up, or, like, a fisherman who pulls out, like, six numbers. Yeah. Kino Now, I'm assuming, is Kino Lorber? I think so, yeah. Um, And they seem... I rented a title, though I thought I bought a title, and so when I went to finally sit down and watch it, I found that I had rented it, and the wow. rental had expired, and now it's not available anymore, so <laughs> fuck me. Wow. That seems like uh, oversight. You should just refund someone if they don't watch it. It's almost like they would log how many times you watch it. It's almost like they do. Probably could complain and get my money back, but hey, it was five bucks. Go. See, five bucks. Jimmy, I'd complain, but who'd listen? I like revenge movies. Every time I watch this, I always think, like, why do I like revenge movies? If, like, because this one, like, really makes the question, like, what's the point of it? But then I think about stuff like I Saw the Devil, which is, like, in some ways the opposite, but still has a soulful. Uh, quality to it at the very last moment but there's still a part of me like this makes me just really question like why do i like you know people taking revenge in movies exactly because this really makes a good argument of like actually you should enjoy that it's not it's not as simple as as you know movies make it seem well and i think that i think that that is the point that is why I think you probably like them because you're talking about the simple ones, <laughs> the fun, the fun ones. I mean, who doesn't like a movie where it's like I spit on your grave or Last House on the Left? Those are revenge movies, right? I mean, I mean, something like that. I think it's because it's not that it's not done as deftly as this film. It's not done as deftly intentionally because you can't in in, in an audience that has some doubt about whether the villain quote unquote needs to die. If you want us to believe that the good guys are still, you know, the heroes are still heroes, morally good heroes, you have to make the villains as reprehensible as possible. And this movie doesn't do that. And obviously that's the intent of the filmmaker is to make us question 
And like you said, Spencer, wonder why we like these things. But we like them because when they're presented well, it's all about like how how far and how deep into the hole are you buried as the villain in the movie? I mean, you want to see them really get their comeuppance. So, but to your point, it is it is a little bloodlusty. It is a little uh, it's a little much. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Je vais me coucher, mère. Je suis fatigué. Écoute-moi, mon fils. Chéri, tu as créé le problème si tu continues à le fréquenter. Il n'y a pas de Je Kenny Kebere Vignon a coulé. Qu'est-ce qu'elle a? Cafini a coulé au nom de Kella. Mouna. Ce sont les tomates. Bien qu'elle s'y mette au nom de Kella. Ça n'a rien à voir avec ce que tu dis. Tu comprends? Tu es notre fils. Tu dois nous donner des enfants.
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Decon. And also, Chris and Spencer will be joining me then. So, Chris and Spencer, Chris specifically, what's keeping you busy? Right now, over the Culture Cast, we are talking about television movies, otherwise known as those things that people don't consider real movies. It is my job this month to somewhat change your opinion on that because, okay, well, I try. I'm going to try. Okay, I know it's hard. I know they have a bad rap and a stigma. I don't know why they're... I mean, look, the fact that movies exist at all is astounding. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, but we're talking about TV movies. So we're going to be talking about some plays that have been turned into movies. We're going to be talking about some series, some short series, long series. We'll see. There's all kinds of stuff in August. And you can find that at culturecast.com. And you can find me and Mike at the Barney Miller Podcast and Twilight Zone 85 Dreams for Sale podcast and the Kolchak tapes, which you could still go and listen to and you should if you haven't. Kino is releasing the original series on Blu-ray in October. We are on that Blu-ray, sir. Oh, I pre-ordered it already because that, that DVD set has been out of print for a while. It sure has. And, and you just purchased a product with these two gentlemen's voices on it. We are on the episode... Oh, the Energy Eater. That is the Mechi Manito, the bear spirit in the hospital one with uh, William Smith, R.I.P. And Spencer, what are you up to lately, sir? For August, my my show, uh, Shoot, to Piano, Shoot to Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast, we are covering Contempt, a Godard movie I think is fine, but interesting. But the uh, one of the guests loves it, and so it's him trying to convince me to... Uh, to like it more, but it doesn't quite work. Uh, whatever. But people know I'm not a big Godard guy. Uh, but, and yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the Desika, uh, rom com anthology film, which is a whole lot of fun. And I think it's Chala, the Simbin movie, is the other episode for August. I honestly can't remember. I have to change the schedule to, to, uh, guest stuff happening so and uh i'll be on grumpire podcast at some point i recorded episode the whole thing is you pick a movie you don't like and pair with the movie you do like so i picked mandy for what i don't like and i saw a devil for what i do like and uh and another show but i have no idea uh, movies from hell but i have no idea when my episode will be out I think I just heard the cries of a hundred fanboys going, "What? He didn't like Mandy? If that was I fucking say I don't awesome." Like it, does that turn it into two hundred fanboys? Because Lavar <laughs> Burton said that uh, one plus one equals two, and that's, uh, I'll give it two hundred there, Alex, because I also did not like that movie. <laughs> yes, when he's drinking the vodka in the bathroom, that's probably the best scene for me. That's I mean, look, it. if it got Nick so. Cage a lot more interesting roles, which I think it kind of has, I'm okay with it. And the cheese the cheese goblin's funny. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah, I am pro Nick Cage. Nick Cage is generally, like, one of the best actors working now, in my opinion. It's just no, not a lot of people know how to work with him exactly. He's a very particular type of energy that some people just, like, tell him, go crazy. It's like, well... Then you get a bad performance, and and people think he's shitty. But it's and that's why you watch <laughs> something like Pig, where he is very sedate, but he feels like a powder keg, just ready to go off through the entire thing. And 
I like that. I think that restrained cage is the best kind of cage that there is. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.